morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2022, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. As we do each week, we take our themes for our questions for the roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays, uh, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern. And as we do each week, we drop the uh, links to both the website where you can subscribe to that newsletter and also subscribe to our podcast version of this roundup if you're so inclined to catch the audio-only version. Also dropping the links for the uh, newsletter edition that came out on Monday in case you would like to catch up as we go along today with the news stories that were featured in that newsletter. And if you prefer to get your... Uh, stories from LinkedIn. We have the newsletter condensed into a nice digest form that you can get Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern or so as well. So I want to say a big shout out to those that are joining live as we do each week, getting a chance to uh, get your takes on some of these uh, important questions of the day. Uh, some of these are rhetorical questions. Some of these are spurred on by uh, themes we've seen in some of the news articles that we're covering today. Uh, in the roundup. Uh, but what we will always start with are questions that have relevance to how we do what we do in international education in the United States. And I say this uh, with, with humility each, each week because these topics aren't ones that necessarily I'm the only one who's seen them. Now, these are topics that we cover that have been, uh, certainly others have, have, uh, have put out articles about them. There have been news stories about them. So we're, we're doing this to present frankly, the SMIE take, but also to encourage debate on these topics because ours is not a, a monolithic industry. There are many uh, ways of doing the same thing, and some successfully, some not. Uh, one of those phenomenons we've dealt with as an industry in the last uh, 10, 15 years has been the rise of educational agents, certainly within the United States. We always recognize that Australia had started with using agents back in 1987 where they kind of formed it, formed it as their consortium of universities, 40-odd universities in Australia, and agreed with IDP to be their representatives out in the field, and that, that would be how they began using uh, agencies. But that has changed over the years. And uh, one, of the, one of the more recent changes is that we now have um, various forms of agents that are part of the mix for many universities in many countries around the world. Many of these agents recruit students to go to many different destinations as well. So we are in a situation with uh, what's happening in international education these days, particularly in the United States, but we see this uh, quite a bit uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, the market, international ed tech market in particular, that has been besieged over the last uh, probably four or five years with the rise of the ag aggregators, agent aggregators. Uh, one of those is uh, Applyboard, another uh, is Adventus. You see uh, uh, other groups like um, uh, like Educo also coming into this into this space, and there are others as well out there. But those are the ones that certainly have garnered a lot of attention in terms of um, bandwidth and certainly international ed news. Uh, but I'm going to share with you today two pieces. Uh, first of which is an interview with Applyboard co-founder Martin Basiri. And he is a former Iranian, or he was an Iranian student who came to Canada for his uh, advanced degrees 
and then years later he decided he wanted to start Apply Board as a way to help a broader range of people, uh, students find their way to study abroad outside their home countries and Apply Board was created. What Apply Board is is one of those aggregators where uh, on the public side of what you see are profiles of different institutions with very detailed information about their admission requirements and a uh, series of agents around the world that are are helping students use the Apply Board site to manage their uh, university search. So fairly straightforward in terms of how that works. but. Uh, the way the Apply Board works with institutions is much like they do with as agents do with institutions that students that come through through the Apply Board platform and agents to universities that will then pay uh, Apply Board a commission for the students that enroll. And those commission rates vary from 15 to 20 percent of net tuition revenue to a flat fees, depending on a fee, $2,500, $3,000, that type of thing. That's the range we're generally talking about. So. What uh, these, uh, what these, uh, what uh, Martin Basiri has done with with Apply Board, they have a massive staff globally now that are managing student inquiries and uh, applications and through the process and are supposed to be doing this uh, extensive vetting of these students before they apply to make sure they're when they apply they're applying for, with everything that they need to be considered hopefully good candidates for those positions that they're applying for, so um, it's supposed to ease that process. Uh, now, aside from uh, the concept of, uh, and there's some questions this week about uh, apply boards, uh, the founder, the, uh, the, their truth, well, truth in advertising, I guess, is or how they're expressing uh, their their uh, their reach, and there's a couple articles on that too. But that, I'm including those in the chat. But the main pieces I'm bringing out of these two articles, one is an interview with. Uh, Martin Basiri uh, at a, through a Forbes at a Forbes event, and the other is uh, th from David Adler. Uh, David Adler is president and CEO of UStudy, and also part of ApplyWave. That's their uh, kind of their platform arm uh, for their uh, not quite an aggregator, but certainly they deal with agencies in a number of different countries that work through them to connect students with university options. So both of them have. Uh, have different takes on whether the United States is lagging behind on international students. Uh, Martin's position is looking at capacity. And as you know from the roundup, we talk about this fairly significantly as to why the U.S. Is, has the most room to grow, frankly. We're at about 5% of our higher education population in the United States is uh, international. In other countries, Canada, uh, UK, 20-25%, in Australia, 30-35%, up, even up to 45-50% at some institutions in Canada, particularly on the voc vocational technology side, and certainly in, ca in Canada and Australia in those sectors. So we're, in his eyes, we're falling behind because we are not maximizing our capacity, basically. And, for, and also we have other issues to deal with in terms of our process, in terms of some of the public relation issues we've had to deal with in recent years with gun violence and anti-Asian hate. Uh, all those things in key markets can be seen as very negative. And certainly those that have made it here, even despite those obstacles, are ones we need to be doing everything we can to keep and treat well so that they can go home and tell the real story about how life is uh, for students on 
college campuses in the U.S. And ultimately, that's what we want. We want every student to be able to say in a positive way that wherever they come in the United States, that they have a positive experience that's helped them grow as an individual, helped set them up for success in their career at the end of the road. Uh, that's what you want uh, from every student that comes, uh, whether domestic student, international student, first-gen student, uh, BIPOC students, all of these, all the various uh, groups that we, our colleges and university campuses are uh, grappling with and trying to include and uh, make sure that they have access to the right facilities and are treated equally on campus, all of these things. Uh, so that's what we want for all of our students. So Martin's right in a way saying that we're lagging behind because we're not at 20, 25%, 30%. And could you imagine what our country would be like? What our campuses and communities that they are surrounded by would be like if 20 to 25% of the students that were attending universities in the United States and colleges were from overseas? What an amazing experience that would be for the other 80%, 75, 75 to 80% of the community, college community, if they were all uh, if they were being exposed every day in class in, in terms of the ideas that they have, their backgrounds, their cultures, how many stereotypes would be broken down in terms of our expectations of other, other cultures from other people from other countries. What, that's all what we could only dream of having something like that. We've just got such a massive higher ed structure in the U.S. Uh, even though it's 5% on average, there are some schools that are in the 10, 15, 20% range, sure, but very few are, uh, have more than 20%, probably count those on, on two hands and maybe a foot, so and that are, are that significantly international. Uh, but you certainly want to know that there is room to grow uh, because there are n hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of universities in the U.S. that aren't actively recruiting international students for a variety of reasons, many of which are budget or staffing related. And certainly you don't want to be extending yourself uh, internationally if you don't have the, in, in terms of students you're bringing in, if you don't have the support for them uh, once they get on campus. But what these, what these two leaders really on from the agent side and the higher ed side uh, in the ed tech space are saying is uh, from Martin Basiri's perspective from Apply Board, we, we are not, we're not maximizing our capacity as, an, as a country for international students. There's so much more we could do. And then you also have um, David Adler saying, uh, what he's saying is that how, his, his, his article is titled, How U.S. Universities Lose Millions of Dollars Every Year. That's a LinkedIn article he penned uh, last week. And it's one that I, th I, I I think should actually be uh, titled how uh, how uh, how U.S. institutions can, can make millions of dollars every year. Even though that's a kind of a uh, sorted way of looking at things, but uh, in terms of his vision, he's saying that uh, you, that institutions, if they're going to if they're going to enhance their global reputation and their international students coming to campus, really it's about putting yourself out there, getting, getting your brand out. And for most colleges, if they have recognition domestically, that doesn't always translate, in fact, rarely does, to recognition internationally. Uh, you have to have been out there. You have to have had hundreds, if not thousands, of international students come through your campus. You need to have captured their success stories. Uh, you need to have uh, gotten your brand out there physically, third, through study abroad, whatever it might be. You need to have a presence, and most colleges in the U.S. don't. So it takes money uh, to do that, but it's not big budgets all the all the way, all the, all, every time. And there are there's a lot of uh, online tools that can be leveraged for little or no cost to do that to get your brand out there. 
uh, that uh, sometimes it's a, it's a scholarship, uh, having something. So uh, even up to quarter to half scholarship are, are what I, I certainly recommend to university clients in the past. And sometimes it takes a while to generate the interest and demand and the need for that uh, to, to be put in place. But something uh, is, uh, has to be uh, part of your unique package that makes a student say, yes, I want to study there. Uh, it talk, it, David talks about a smoother and easier application process. Um, as I've uh, mentioned many times before, we overthink things in the U.S. when it comes to uh, our college admissions process. We think we're so selective, but really we're not. Uh, we think we're, whole, we're very holistic in terms of how we approach admissions, but in the end, uh, the, the details are often very minor uh, and minuscule in terms of the differentiators between getting admitted and not. Often it's a GPA or a test score. Thankfully, many of us have gotten rid of the test score requirement as a required part of admissions for international students. Um, I think that we should be test blind, so it removes that entirely as a, as a potential hurdle for them. Uh, application fees can be another significant hurdle. Uh, deadlines and uh, teacher recommendation letters, essays, all of these are extras that may or may not really in the end give you, uh, unless you're an extremely selective institution where you can craft your class and have uh, single digit admission rates, what's the point of those in the, in the overall process? So uh, the other piece is uh, having effective networks, whether that be high school counselor networks or agent networks, needing relationships, uh, developing those, maintaining those, and informing those. Uh, it's not just a set it and forget it kind of thing that you sign up all these agents, you're not gonna, you shouldn't expect all, all of a sudden students to start uh, showing up because of that. You need to do the work. Uh, maintain that relationship, give them updated information, do the, uh, where you can do the webinars uh, for them uh, to provide the uh, direct contact, that information that they need on an ongoing basis. And really be a leader, uh, and that's something at, uh, in, de in the decision-maker roles at institutions is a really critical element, and one that I think uh, David makes a very good case for is uh, areas that uh, many U.S. colleges are, frankly, lagging behind. So in terms of what's next, I think what we always see and hear about uh, for, for um, U.S. institutions uh, is, particularly in the post-pandemic era, is what kind of challenges are we facing? And these are, there's a, a myriad of them. And I think what we, what we often forget is that uh, we're not alone <laughs> and that, um, in fact, there are many uh, institutions that will be sharing similar challenges and concerns. And let's, uh, let's go to uh, an article, uh, actually Karen uh, Fisher's uh, Latitudes newsletter, uh, top, f top story for, for that this week is what's the future of international recruitment. And it t takes a look at the pandemic's impact. It's, uh, she talks with uh, several uh, leaders in international ed from across the country, uh, talking to Samba Jiang at uh, LSU. Uh, he's a, a senior international officer there. Uh, he talks about uh, uh, preparing students, uh, being, uh, being prepared on campus for future instability uh, from pandemics, geopolitical uh, uh, issues, all of that uh, needs to be uh, part, of the, part of our preparedness uh, and that uh, we need to be get ready for that and use some of those experiences we've had in terms of uh, what, we, uh, what we want to need to, need to provide during those uh, times of uncertainty. Uh, Samba also makes the case along with uh, 
for diversifying the international pipeline alongside uh, Jun Wang from uh, UCR, uh, University of California, Riverside, and that uh, have very different approaches uh, to, uh, to diversifying uh, and recruitment. Uh, at LSU, Sam was talking about uh, not being overly reliant on China and India, as most, most colleges are. And he makes the case for Africa being an important focus. And given the explosive growth uh, that is happening there, where 60% of the country, continent's population is under 25, so right in that college age mix. Uh, UCR has a very different policy. They're uh, in post-pandemic life. They're getting everybody uh, out on the road. Uh, they're going to be traveling to 42 countries on, on six continents. Uh, but prioritizing Middle East and Southeast Asia. So different regions, different priorities are different country, colleges, different priorities in terms of where they recruit. So, um, but knowing your selling points is also an important piece, and David Adler mentioned that in his, his, his piece, uh, knowing what your, what your top selling points are to, to uh, universities, uh, to students abroad. And I think uh, we have prided ourselves, enrollment management is a part of university life that for years has prided themselves on being data-driven. And domestically, there's been a lot of truth to that. Internationally, less so. But over the last two, three years of, um, of uh, intakes from fall of 2021 and now 22, we've been seeing a, a vastly different uh, uh, playing field in terms of what uh, students who are looking to come here are up against in terms of access to uh, to to uh, uh, visa appointments and ability to travel. 20, in, 19, in, 18, 19, in 2020, the travel piece was basically unavailable, even though there were some posts that were uh, consulates still open. Uh, like the greater majority of students who wanted to travel couldn't because of the travel, travel restrictions that were still in place. In 21, we had a vaccine. We were, colleges were uh, requiring uh, negative code of tests, if not vaccines, in order to come to campus. And just before the school year started, we had the vaccine mandate that all international travelers would have to have a vaccine. So that's, that's changed the dynamic as well, as consulates have slowly reopened. They're not fully open everywhere yet. In China, there's still massive challenges in terms of uh, having visa appointments open. Uh, there's been significant drop-offs as a result in uh, Chinese students getting visas to come. Uh, just because they're not uh, staffing, they're not up, back up to full staffing. None of, most, most of the consulates have still had emergency appointment only. So some have returned to regular office hours and going to lockdown. There's been a, a very variable effect in uh, China in terms of availability of appointments. So that's been a real challenge for us to regain some of that China market. Uh, so there's uh, the, so predictability on terms of yield, especially, it has been uh, very hard to uh, pin down in the last two, uh, last three intakes, particularly this this coming fall term, where you would hope it'd be much better than uh, last year, but uh, in certain countries it will. India, the numbers will be up dramatically. China, not so much. Maybe still below pre-pandemic uh, levels. So we'll see where we where we'll get uh, where we'll where we'll be in another month or two when we uh, start seeing some of these fall numbers coming in. Uh, but uh, some of the challenges that are uh, the article also mentions that Karen writes about uh, is the effect of the Great Resignation in international ed. I've spoken about that here on the Roundup several times, where there's been just this incredible loss of talent over the years, um, the last three years now, uh, where you would have senior senior leadership institutions make the decision well it's budgetary reasons we let's cut the, the senior people in all these fields not regardless of the or cut entire departments regardless of the impact that would have to regrow that it doesn't happen overnight 
Uh, and certainly there's been a lot of people in our field that, if they haven't left the profession uh, entirely, have gone over to the dark side and are now working for service providers. And uh, as that ed tech side of, uh, of, the, of the equation for international education has come to dominate uh, on the service provider side, you, you, you can imagine that, that there's been some attraction to bring students over, or to bring uh, the talent from university side over to work. Uh, for these uh, service providers that are looking to um, build their reputations, build their portfolio of institutions, and having people who have uh, have studied abroad uh, that certain or have uh, been in the game and know uh, the other side of the desk that they're going to be talking to in terms of recruiting them. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot of value in that, and I've in the past when I was just starting out my consulting career, that was one of the things I needed to do to. Uh, to keep paying, keep the lights on and keep paying the bills. So I totally get that why people do that and wanting a change from the day-to-day -day grind of universities and the unpredictability of it. But there's a very a degree of unpredictability on the other side as well, on the uh, service provider side. And uh, promises are made and promises are broken regularly and expectations are way too high than, uh, than what you're able to deliver on. And that's uh, that. Those are always challenges that uh, you face on the service provider side. So, uh, but that that great resignation certainly you you certainly feel that. I've spoken about it here several times from the three major conferences this summer from NAFSA, where 40% were first timers, to International ACAC, where about 50% were first timers, to the Education USA Forum, where again about 50% were first timers. You see that kind of. Um, uh, shift, seismic shift, frankly, in our profession. And that's a direct result of people leaving or being let go uh, over the last three years. So until we overcome some of those personnel challenges and uh, regrow that talent, it's not, uh, not, over, not an overnight thing at all. You have to be prepared to, uh, to suck it up uh, sometimes and uh, regrow and will take time and uh, the taps aren't immediately going to be turned back on. Uh, because there are a lot of moving parts here that make uh, make it possible for students to to again return in the way they once did, and hopefully there'll be new markets that'll come in that will refresh some of those uh, older markets and take the place some older markets that uh, maybe as not as fruitful as we've seen in the past. So that's the second question. My last question that I really wanted to get into this week, and I've always had. And I'm not attributing this as a, the, the reason why the UK has gotten ahead of us uh, in terms of rebounding from the pandemic as well as they have over the last two years. For fall 21 and fall 22, their intakes are going to be off the charts. Uh, why is that? They've just been uh, overwhelmed by new Chinese interest. Uh, they, they're rebounding uh, in India with the reintroduction of the post-study work visa a couple of years ago. Uh, now they're able to fully implement that and realize the benefits of it. So uh, we've seen US, uh, US kind of start to re regain uh, its footing, but the UK has, has continued. We're still the largest des destination. There's, we're not in any danger of losing that in the next four or five years. But uh, the way some, some institutions within the UK have gone about their growth uh, over the last five years is quite eye-opening. And the link I'm dropping into the chat now is from the Pi. Uh, Pi News, and it uh, profiles uh, UK universities that in the last, or in 21, tw in the 2021-22 academic year, uh, paid nine million pounds 
each. Let me make sure I've got that right. Nine million pounds each to agents in terms of commission fees. Now let's take let's break that down a little bit. Uh, so this is uh, this is really uh, really telling. Uh, we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the uh, the function of agents and for commission based agents, and they they get a fee either a percentage of first year net tuition revenue or a flat fee per year for a student that enrolls. Uh, so um, in the UK, similar structures are in place, but you, you uh, here's the, here are the numbers from, let's say, for example, Exeter, University of Exeter. They paid in 2021 £9 million pounds, uh, to recruit 1,800 postgraduate students, 1,750 undergraduate students. So. Uh, any guesses what that amounts to? That's about, uh, and, and if you do on a per student fee, per, per student cost from nine million pounds for 2,550 students, that works out to be a little over 4,200 US dollars per student. 4,200 US dollars in the past year that one university uh, was giving per student $4,200 two agents for students that enrolled at their institutions. I don't know about you, but uh, we're not paying anywhere near that right now. Uh, and $500 sometimes makes a difference. Certainly a couple thousand might will make a difference. 1500 certainly will make a difference uh, in terms of uh, an agent's, uh, in some, some areas, an agent's willingness to send their students to or encourage their students to apply to uh, institutions where they're getting higher commissions. I'm not saying that's the case with uh, with York uh, and Exeter here. York also uh, paid nine million. Uh, they didn't share how many that they uh, how many students were recruited by agents in that last five years. But to give you a, a sample of the difference, uh, Exeter in 2021, their per student agent commission was about forty two hundred dollars, as I mentioned. For uh, five years ago, they um, agents were paid 2.5 million for 1,100 uh, students. Uh, so that's uh, obviously uh, more than double the number of students, but nearly uh, quadrupled, at least tripled the number of the amount that they were paying. So they went from about $2,500 to $4,200 in the course of five years in terms of the n amount of the fees that they were charging and uh, that was the per agent fee difference for the 1100 1 international students in 2016 got paid got paid 2.5 million pounds to the 9 million pounds paid out to recruit 2500 uh, so more than double the number of students but more than triple the amount of commission paid, and that works out to be an average difference of about $1,700 more in five years. University of Exeter increased their commission per student uh, to increase the number of international students that they enrolled. So it's a, uh, the article itself is focused on the dollar amounts that some of these uh, British institutions are paying. Uh, that has now uh, uh, you see some institutions going from 720,000 pounds five years ago to 5.1 million 
in, a, in the last year. Uh, so there's certainly, you're seeing differences that, that uh, the, certainly the increase agents have been driving a lot of the growth that these institutions have felt and those commissions have certainly been contributing to that. So you, you think about it when, uh, if you have a student that is applying to a British university like one of these and then applying to your university and academically might be the same but if that student is getting uh, agent is getting $4,200 versus $3,000 at your institution, is that going to be make a difference for you if you can send four or five students as an agent? Ideally, your agent should be acting in the best interests of the student and finding that best fit, as, as we all hope and pray that happens, but we know that's not always the case. So I wonder how much more these commissions are making a difference in that mix. So that's just my, my question for the day. Uh, is to, to get a sense of what people's thoughts are on this phenomenon, on the uh, how the commission rates have skyrocketed so significantly at, uh, across these institutions in the UK. I wonder if that's reflective of larger trends and uh, not knowing what those average uh, agent fees are in Canada, but I would uh, hazard to say there in Australia in the Voketech sector, you probably will see some pretty significant commission rates uh, jumps over the last five years, uh, particularly for Canada. I, that's what I would put my money on. But uh, you see where the growth has happened. Uh, you know that more U.S. institutions started using agents certainly in the last five, ten years. But are we doing them well yet? Are we, do we all have our acts together in that respect? Clearly not. Are we all working with agents the way we need to in terms of uh, seeing it as another relationship we have to foster and, and, and feed and, and encourage uh, at times? So there, these are the things that I, 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 I certainly don't know if we have a clear grasp on why we're not seeing the growth yet. Commission rates might be a piece of that puzzle. Uh, if some are holding on to 2000 uh, per student flat fee, then you may be not getting as many students because agents aren't going to be as incentivized to send. Um, that needs to be a part of the reality of business businesses in the pandemic. Certainly, you see, uh, we've seen articles recently that uh, commission rates will need to increase because of inflation and all the other factors that have impacted us over the last three years. So we've got a lot of, uh, obviously, moving parts that affect what we do in international education. And what some of these uh, UK universities have been doing is, a, a, frankly, a very creative way to do it, a very simple way, but uh, it's been effective for them. So whether other colleges in other uh, parts of the world take, uh, take that example and follow suit, uh, to, be de uh, to be determined. But certainly there's a lot of uh, moving parts out there, and we uh, know that you have a lot of, uh, there are a lot of questions out there that none of us can really answer fully, but uh, we can get there together and certainly happy to help out along the way if we can. So thanks everybody for joining us on this week's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Wish you the very best and hope to see you soon. Cheers.